with me, open it again to the epistle of James, letter from the half-brother of the Lord Jesus to several churches around the Roman Empire. Remember, James was one of the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem uh, after it got its start there, after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. James here writing to uh, encourage and admonish and even bring some correction to various churches uh, in his day. We have been looking over the last several weeks at the central theme of James, which is having a faith that works and looking at what genuine faith of believers uh, is and does and what it looks like and how it manifests itself in our lives and in the life of the church. Today, James chapter uh, 4, verses 13 through 17. We will be looking at the central theme that faith trusts God. Gaston, of Beauty and the Beast fame, (laughs) believes in the unwavering verity of one assertion, that no one is as great as Gaston. No one's quick like Gaston. No one is slick like Gaston. No one's neck is as incredibly thick as Gaston's. Gaston is a a foil. I'm not going to sing the whole song. Gaston is a, oh, come on, somebody said, you don't, it's a long song, we don't have time. Gaston is a paragon of pride in the movie Beauty and the Beast, and it is Gaston's pride that ultimately is his downfall. He uh, has a big head, literally and figuratively. There is, in his mind, no one that is better than him and can do anything as great as he can do it, even defeating the beast, and that ultimately leads to his demise. Spoiler alert. I guess I should have said that before for anybody who hasn't seen Beauty and the Beast. Now you know what happens to Gaston. He meets his demise. Gaston's arrogance, his boastfulness, uh, his total trust in only himself is what ultimately causes him to fail. But Christians of genuine faith, we see from James at the end of chapter 4, do not trust in themselves, but trust their lives and trust their will to God and submit the course of their lives to Him, lest we lead ourselves to our uh, our own demise." This morning, as we look at James four thirteen to 17, hopefully we will come to see that because we have submitted our will and our trust to Christ for salvation, those of us who are, who are clinging to Jesus as Lord, we find that we ought also to submit our will and our trust for the future of our lives to Christ as well. It is unreasonable and it is unchristian for us to trust God for our greatest need, which is salvation from sin, and yet not to trust Him for the smaller things of our day-to-day plans, our day-to-day intentions. I hope that this passage of Scripture this morning would lead us to repent of pride, of arrogance, of self-trust, and commit to ourselves to pursuing God's will as we plan for the future. Let us not be like Gaston. Let us be submissive to the will of God. Would you stand with me as we read James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James continues in his letter saying, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. God add blessing to the reading of his word. Be seated. James points out for us three, I think, helpful truths in these verses. The first is this, that trusting yourself is folly. Trusting in your own abilities is foolishness. In this passage of James' letter, we find him rebuking certain persons in the church among the merchant class who are professing to be Christians. Now, the conflict that these merchants within the church have created for themselves is with uh, uh, the, the conflict with their professed faith comes with how they have begun to plan their lives and to plan their business dealings. Their planning, James shows, is entirely dependent upon themselves and their own ability to control the future. Hear what he says that they are saying about themselves. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. Their planning is entirely dependent upon what they are able to do and what their intentions are. All of their intentions for doing business are built upon assumptions about their own ability to control when they will leave on this business trip, exactly where they will go, how long they will stay, and what what sort of fruit will come about from their dealings. They intend to make a profit. Not just intend to, they expect to make a profit. These merchants have both the arrogance and the foolishness to believe that they have such control over their lives and even the years of their lives that they can themselves determine the outcomes years in advance. James shows why this is foolish. He says that it is impossible to know with certainty what will come tomorrow. Verse 14, yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. They don't know what will come tomorrow. They don't know what will come much less a year from now or even 10 or 20 years from the present moment. Trusting one's own plans and intentions and one's own control over life events is the height of foolishness, precisely because our lives are exceedingly brief. Our intentions are regularly sinful and our control is virtually non-existent. What is your life, says James? You are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes when the sun comes. Consider our lack of ability to predict the future. We think we're really good at it, but in reality, we're terrible. Think about how much trust we put in the weather forecast for tomorrow or two or three days from now to find that it is not correct. God bless Mark Ronchetti. I wouldn't bet on his predictions because weather changes too frequently. It's too erratic. It's, it is almost unpredictable. Consider even the stock market. Right, many of us uh, maybe have uh, retirement plans that are dependent upon the working of the stock market. Maybe some of us are engaged in dealing in the stock market, buying and selling and that sort of thing because we're making prognostications about what's going to happen and how we're, we'll be able to do the best with our money there and that sort of thing. Consider this old adage that with it, when it comes to the stock market, every time uh, uh, there's a, a trade made in the stock market, every time one person buys, another person is selling. And both of them are certain that they've done well. Every time you buy stock thinking it's going to do well, someone else is selling that stock to you thinking it's going to do poorly. 
we have very little ability to control the future. And usually the kind of control we intend to exert upon the future is sinful. It's selfish. It's self-centered. Our lives are very, very short. And so even what we can, think we can control, think we can predict is, is ultimately not really worth very much. Hear what Scripture says about the true brevity of our lives. James says we do not know what tomorrow will be like. He says that our lives are like an early morning mist or a fog that vanishes when the sun rises. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5 says this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days just a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16, as for man, his days are like grass. Any of you have grass in your yards uh, in the desert? He flourishes like a flower of the field, for, but for when the wind passes over it and it is gone, it's pl- and its place is, is no more. Of course, though James is speaking to merchants in this passage about the brevity of their life, their inability to control the future, even to, to make plans with precision for what will happen, the principle that James is teaching, that it is folly to trust in yourself, applies to all of us. How often do we create five or ten year plans for our future based upon the jobs we assume we'll have and retirement income we assume we'll collect? How often do we apply to colleges or universities with the certain confidence of our, uh, of our course of study and future employment? High school students, college students, I'll just let you know that all it took was one business accounting class to demonstrate to me that I was going to be an English major. How frequently do we spell out and even define what our children or grandchildren will grow up to be ever before we've even married, much less had children? All of this betrays in us the sinful flaw of trusting our own ability to predict and to control the future. Trusting yourself is folly, says James. Instead, trust the Lord. James corrects the way of thinking among these people who are acting sinfully in the church by saying in verse 15, instead you ought to say, so rather than saying we'll go to uh, uh, tomorrow or, or today, we'll go to such and such town and we'll do business there a year and we'll make a profit. Instead of saying that, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Look, it's not wrong in and of itself to plan for the future. That's not what James is saying. It's not wrong to do business uh, and to make a profit. It's not wrong to buy life insurance. It's not wrong to pursue a college degree. It's not wrong to buy tickets for your family summer vacation next year. But it is sinful to do those things without submitting your life and your plans to the will of God. And it is sinful to do these things without holding those plans for your life in a loose hand should God redirect at any moment. Rather than making presumptuous plans based upon our own selfish will... The approach of all people then, Christians especially, should be to submit all of our intentions to the will of the Lord. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Indeed, we know that there is no one better to trust than the Lord. There are no one's plans that are more sure and more certain than the Lord's. Hear what God says about himself through the prophet Isaiah, who lived about 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. God says this, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it, says the Lord. Christian, if you have trusted God's plan to forgive your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, you can all the more easily and readily place your trust in God for the smaller things of planning for the future. If God is able to meet our greatest need, which is forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with him, how much more can he take care of the smaller things in our lives? And yet, all too often, we treat our salvation like it is a small thing and our day-to-day plans like they are big things. And we get this whole thing out of balance. We don't worry about our salvation, and yet we stay up at night worrying about our retirement accounts. Right? Worrying about what our children are, are, are being exposed to in school or what they'll grow up to be or whatever else. And that betrays uh, in us a, a lack of understanding of how capable God is in all things. For if we can trust God with the great things of the great thing of salvation, which is a, a miracle impossible for any human to effect on his or her own, how much more then can we trust God for the smaller things, like our children's lives and our retirement plans and our family vacations? Trusting yourself is folly. Instead, trust the Lord. Second, James teaches us that boasting about your pride is wicked. As we have seen, rather than being trusting of God and submitting their plans and intentions to him, these merchants that James is addressing, that James is, is rebuking, have, intended, have instead intended to do things their own way, in their own presumed planning, according to their own assumed wisdom. This confidence in human wisdom is what leads to the kinds of jealousy and selfish ambition that James has previously excoriated the church for in chapter 3 of his letter. In fact, the way that these merchants, and and let's just be honest, most of us plan for the future, the the way that we do that is inherently selfish and self-centered. Even if the plans are not evil in and of themselves, we're not planning to go, you know, murder somebody, but our plans are selfish. Our plans are for our own personal good. Our plans usually tend to benefit ourselves first and God or others only secondarily. The resulting problem for the people that James is correcting, is that rather than being humbled before God by their faith in Christ and their reliance upon God, these merchants instead have begun to boast in their arrogance. The picture is this, that they are actually bragging about how prideful they are. No one's slick like Gaston. No one's quick like Gaston. No one's necks is incredibly thick as Gaston. They are boasting. They are bragging about how prideful they are. That's a strange thing to, to imagine. Somebody saying, look how prideful I am. I am so arrogant. Look at me. But yet this is what the people that James is rebuking are doing. Because apparently these merchants have been able to plan successfully in the past for business dealings and that sort of thing. They have become proud of that. And now they are boasting, they are bragging, they are showing off about their confidence in themselves. They're not only saying, look how good I am at making plans for the future. They're saying, look how confident I am in my ability to make plans for the future. 
It is, as one scholar has said, to proclaim their total autonomy, their total independence from the Lord. They are, in effect, saying, I am so good at this life thing, I don't need God's help at all. And these are people who call themselves Christians. All boasting like this, James says, all of this bragging in one's own abilities and presumed successes, all of this boasting, all of this bragging is evil. It is wicked. It is sinful. And James doesn't shirk from saying so. It is sinful because it is a function of the idolatry of the self, setting one's own trust and confidence and worship upon himself and not upon God. Now, not all boasting is evil. We know this. Prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 9.24, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, the Lord, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Psalm 34.2 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. We sang just a moment ago this morning, I will boast in Christ alone, His righteousness and not my own. Right? So all boasting is not evil, but boasting in ourself is. The right kind of boasting, if you're going to boast about anything, if you're going to be confident about anything, let, let your confidence be in God who is able to save, who is able to bring forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with Him through Jesus His Son who died to pay our penalty on the cross and who rose from the dead. Put your confidence in that. Brag upon the goodness of God. Boast in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who saved you. Not all boasting is evil, but all boasting about ourselves most certainly is. Boasting in ourselves is wicked, says James. Instead, place confidence in Christ. Instead, place your assurance in the person of Jesus. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31. Hear what the apostle says. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and here he quotes Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Dear friend, there is plenty of reason to place your confidence in Jesus. No other person in human history has ever matched what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And you can trust that those things surely happen. There is good historical evidence, even outside the Bible, for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, he has done what no other human being in the course of human history has ever done. And we know that he is able to do that because he is God in flesh. He's God with skin on. He can do what we cannot because He is what we are not. Dear friend, you can have confidence in Christ. You can trust the Scriptures. You can have assurance about your relationship with God and your eternal destiny in His presence if you will place your hope and confidence and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Christian, if that is you and you have You have trusted Christ this way. Be confident in Christ before you have any confidence in your own abilities. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, know this, that the Bible warns against 
the results of our boasting, of our assurance in our own abilities. And instead this morning, do what Scripture calls you to do and trust Jesus. Turn from selfishness. Turn from sin. Turn to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died to pay for your sins, that you might be right with God and was raised from the dead, that he might also raise you. Boasting in yourself is wicked. Instead, place your confidence in Christ. Third, James teaches that avoiding doing what is right is sin. Avoiding, failing to do what is right is sin. In verse 17, he writes this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Here, James gets to the very heart of the matter of sin in the situation of prideful planning without respect to God. Prideful planning without trust in God's purposes. James has laid the foundation that it is right to live with all of your trust in the Lord, submitting all of our plans to Him. It is uh, right because this is a foundation of what it is to be a Christian. Life with Christ starts with trusting Jesus, not ourselves, for salvation, for being right with God. The assumption is that all Christians know that this is right to do, not only with salvation, but with every part of our lives. If it's right to trust the Lord for our forgiveness of sin and relationship with Him, then it is right to trust Him with the smaller things, like our plans for the future. But you see, if a Christian knows what is the right thing to do, and he intentionally avoids doing the right thing, that is by nature, as James says, a passive disobedience. It is a sin of omission. A sin of Commission is a sin you intentionally do. You know it's evil and you do it anyway. A sin of omission is knowing the right thing to do and failing to do it. The key sin of omission that James is pointing out here in this passage has been made plain already. It is sinful to know what God has commanded, that we trust Him with everything and what is right to do in life with God and to ignore it and do elsewise. That is sinful. But this verse does, not, does apply uh, not just in the specific uh, uh, sin of omission of these merchants who know that it's right to trust the Lord and yet don't, uh, but this verse uh, of knowing what is right to do and failing to do it applies broadly to all sorts of sinful omissions. One scholar writes, we have a tendency when we think of sin to think only of the things that we have done that we should not have done. But our confessions to God should also consider those ways in which we have failed to do what the Lord has commanded us to do. Perhaps, he says, I did not reach out to help to love a neighbor in need. Perhaps I failed to bear witness to Christ to a co-worker when I had the opportunity. These also are sins for which we must seek God's forgiveness. Avoiding doing the right thing is sin. Instead, says James, Practice ready obedience to God. Practice ready obedience to God. Jesus once told a parable. You can find it in Matthew chapter 21. Parable of two sons whose father asked them to go work in his vineyard. The first son said, yes, I'll go. But he did not. And the other son said, I will not go. But later he changed his mind and went. Jesus asked, which of these did the will of his father? Which son knew the right thing to do and did do it? Even though he may have said no, he still fulfilled his father's wishes. In all of this, it feels to me like James has taken us full circle again to the theme of this whole letter. 
that we are to be doers of God's word and not self-deceived hearers only. That as followers of Jesus, we don't merely give lip service to Scripture like this, this book is good and it's helpful for me and I open it on Sunday and to sing songs to the God that it talks about. That we don't merely give lip service to Scripture, but that we live in actual, active, ready obedience to it. That when Scripture says to do something or we are convicted or convinced about the importance of doing what Scripture says, that we go out and do that thing without hesitation with an active, ready obedience. So then what does active obedience look like when it comes to trusting God with our future plans? All right, we'll go back to the sin that James is rebuking the merchants in the church for, for making plans under the assumption that they can control the future. What, what does it look like when it comes to trusting God with those things? How do we practice ready obedience to trust God with the plans of our future? I want to give five brief practical steps. First of all, you have these in your worship guide. In order to to live in an active, obedient way toward God with all that we do, first, practice a humble posture toward God. Practice a humble, have a humble posture toward God. Recognize that as uh, he says in, that as God says in Isaiah 49, that he is God and we are not. That there is no one like him. We don't even come close in comparison to God. Our wisdom fails in His presence. All of the things that we know, all of our degrees from schools, all of our licenses and accreditations, all of the stuff that shows up on our resume is as nothing before God. It is good for us to remember that and to remind ourselves of that. It is good to remember that He is God and that we are not and to worship Him for it. So ever before making any plans, ever before doing anything in your life, practice a humble posture toward God. Recognize who He is and who you are not. Second, seek God's help to discern His will. You remember in James chapter 1, verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you need God's help, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So as you make plans for the future, plans for your children, plans for retirement, plans for vacation, plans for a mission trip, plans for a career, as you maybe plan your uh, your pursuit of God's calling in your life, be humble first, and then in prayer to God, say, God, give me wisdom. I need help to discern your will. Because I know that if I do what I want to do, I'm going to mess it all up. If I do what I'm going to do, it's going to be a disaster. If I do things my way and my own time, I'm just going to continue living in the pattern of sin that I've been living in. So God, give me grace, give me wisdom to discern where you want me to go. Then third, as you plan, begin all of your plans with prayer and continue planning with prayer. Humble yourself before the Lord, seek his wisdom. Pray asking for God to shape your planning processes, to shape your expectations, your intentions for the future so that all along the way you'll be obedient even in the planning process. Then fourth, hold your plans loosely. Hold your plans loosely. It's not uncommon for us to work through a planning process assuming we've been prayerful about it assuming that we've been trusting and listening to God's direction, and then at the end of it or in the middle of it for plans to change dramatically, for God to do something different. And that could be for a number of reasons. 
It could be that we were not listening to God as we prayed while we were making our plans. It could be that we, we gave lip service to trusting God, but we ignored him through that whole process. Or it could be that God in, intended to bring us through a process of planning, even under his direction, uh, and into a position where he would intentionally change our plans. Not just to mess with us, but to say, listen, I still know what's best for you. Yes. Right? Sometimes what we need to do, what we need in our lives is for God to change course in our life very quickly, to, to test our, our reflexive faith, if I can put it that way. You know, when you go to the doctor and they check your reflexes with a little hammer on your knee, and I don't even know if they do that anymore. Last few times I've been to the doctor, they haven't done it. But it's fun to do if you're sitting with somebody who's next to you and they got their leg crossed, just like knock them on the knee and see if you can get their <laughs> knee to go, right? When, when there are... when when things happen uh, uh, like that to our body, we have reflexes. We do things reflexively. And we need to practice a kind of reflexive faith. So when challenges come in life, when plans change, when things go differently than we expected, that our reflex is to trust God. That our reflex is not to freak out and blame God and question Him and what He's doing, but to remind ourselves God is good. He knows what He's doing. His plans are better than mine. His purposes in my life are far better than I could ever intend for myself. So I'm going to trust Him. Hold all your plans loosely. Have a reflexive faith. Then fifth and finally, act with swift obedience to God. When you know the right thing to do, obey swiftly. When you know God's intention for your life, when he has made those things clear, when he has obviously laid a conviction upon your heart about the right thing to do, a person to speak to about the gospel of Jesus, a, a person to love in the name of Christ, help to give to a fellow believer, as soon as you know the right thing to do, do it. Do it swiftly. Act with swift obedience to God. And in this way, practicing these five things, I think, we can begin to develop in ourselves a discipline, a spiritual discipline of trusting God with every step of our lives, with every plan we make, every intention of our heart, everything that he would have for us. Friends, what is the right thing you must do today? Faith, genuine faith in God trusts God, even when, and, and especially when he tells us the thing to do. So what is the right thing you must do today? If you've not begun to live a life following Jesus, the right thing for you to do today is to turn from the sinful habit of trusting yourself and to give your life and faith to Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals to us that Jesus is the sinless Son of God who died on a cross to fulfill the sentence for our sin. But because He is God in flesh, He defeated not only sin, but also uh, uh, He defeated death as He rose from the dead three days later. The promise of Scripture is this. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord over all things, Lord over your life, that he is king and master of your soul, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. If you don't know Jesus, if you've not begun to walk in faith with him today, the right thing for you is to trust Jesus. Yeah. Christian, we all know, though, how easy it is to fall back into this prideful way of living. We may not be singing with Gaston about how slick and quick and incredibly thick we are. But we can certainly live that way, act that way, even if we don't say it. To give worship to God on Sunday and then to live out your own plans on Monday is all too easy to do. Dear Christian, what is the right thing for you to do today? What is the one thing you need to quit trusting yourself for and to begin trusting God with? 
Where do you need to obey the call of God in your life today? Is God calling you to share the gospel with a neighbor or coworker? Is God placed upon your heart a, a, a calling to maybe vocational, uh, pastoral, or ministry leadership? Maybe serving as a missionary or, uh, or serving in the church in some way? Men, is God calling you to love your wives more sacrificially? To love your children more dearly as Christ would? Wives, is God calling you to enable and empower your husband to lead spiritually in the home? What is God calling you to do today that you must do? To not do would be disobedient. Christian, if you know it, if you know that thing that God is calling you to do today, do it, obey swiftly, and know the joy of the Father that attends all who walk in loving obedience to Him. It is good to do what is obedient to God. It brings us joy. And if you don't believe me, I say just test it. Begin obeying God this week and whatever he calls you to do. Test it and see if the Lord does not give you joy. Test it this week. Obey swiftly. Have faith that trusts God. Let's pray.